Um, Dale, before we start uh, into today's lesson, uh, Dale sent me this article that has the heading Luther's Baptismal Rites, because we talked about baptism last week, and baptism's at the, in the background. Um, I wouldn't say it's in the background. It's the central driving theme from John chapter 1 through 4. So we keep talking about baptism, even today, in regards to the wedding at Cana. It's a baptismal, it's actually a baptismal text. It maybe doesn't seem that on surface, but, that, but it's in the context of this narrative about baptism. So we talked about some of the old rites, and I got confused. You don't put salt in their eyes, you put salt on their tongue, which makes a lot more sense. But you blow in their eyes, right? And you can read this. This is by my friend, uh, Dr. Mark Burkholz. He's a pastor in Oak Lawn, Illinois. He's a, but we went to undergrad together, actually. He was pre-SEM, I wasn't. So he's been in the ministry a little longer than me. But he um, earned a doctorate from... It's on the north side of Chicago. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Divinity School there. Anyway, uh, wrote a nice, nice article that summarizes how Luther really pared things down uh, in the Reformation. Uh, not only theologically, like trying to remove all the cruft and the additions that it had been added through the medieval period, but even in the way that the church prays and the, the way the church practices the faith. To pare it down to the essentials. Yeah, Ron. I've been reading this series of books on Christians throughout the centuries, mm-hmm. time of Christ on. In the early church, it says that after a baptism, uh, the communicant or the baptismal mm-hmm. person, they gave uh, milk and honey. Mm, right. Yeah, and that's in the article too, I think, isn't it? Maybe not. Yeah, milk and honey, promised land, right? Yeah, and so I mean, so on the one hand, I understand Luther's problem because those those all those things that have been added to the rite—the salt, the water, the oils, the um, the different all the different words, all the different stories—they um, had taken on a life of their own by by Luther's day, and take he thought distracted from the main thing, which is water and the word and baptism. Um, but on the flip side. Especially even today, I mean, people are pretty not um, illiterate. Um, I've had folks not here, but in the past say, oh, "I'm not comfortable coming to Bible class because I don't want, I can't read out loud very well, or I'm not really, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm just not comfortable reading the Bible," which is incredible, really. It should be incredible to us because you know everything's about literacy and you know reading age and all of that. But that doesn't mean that you're competent at it and you're able to do it. So the church um, has addressed this in many ways throughout, throughout time, even today. So I mean, and most of it's obvious. Artwork, stained glass windows, right? They teach the faith. They, there's, I mean, even here, the icons at the top of the windows all have a um, corresponding, um, something corresponding in the Christian faith. I think it was Pastor Osladil, maybe, that did a, he wrote up something about that. I found it at some point, and I don't know what I did with it. It was Pastor Alaska. Was it Alaska? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am too. I pointed out at an LWML event, the one with the anchor, which is the, as I'm facing you, back left or your right, top, uh, right in front of the balcony. But there's others too that are. You, you did that in Indiana. I did in Indiana. Indiana, we had even more images. Um, even though we had less glass, the glass was, and the glass was less ornate, um, there were a lot more symbols. So. Yeah, there were like 26 or something in there. So uh, I created a little, I called it a catechism of images and it was just to explain what each one meant or where it came from. Some of them are a little, um, I don't know, 
lost to us, I think, like the pomegranate uh, or the fleur-de-lis. We didn't have a fleur-de-lis there, but that's another one. Uh, let's see. And then also music. So why, why teach hymns? Um, because music has a way of putting words into your ears and, and then into your heart. And so the idea wasn't just that we sing hymns, but that we learn hymns, um, that we learn them by heart so that we can sing them. Because he couldn't read the words, so they would learn it. And so they would actually sing hymns like this. You'd say, salvation unto us has come. And then you'd sing, salvation unto us has come. And we'd read, repeat back and forth. Um, they would do it with the Psalms too. You know, where they would sing the line of the Psalm and then people would respond with that, with that line from the Psalm and back and forth that way. Uh, let's see what else. Artwork, music, the liturgy themselves, the repetition of it is a teaching, teaching thing where you hear the same words each week. Um, I'm forgetting something. Well, I mean, even the way the pastor dresses, the way the church is decorated, we talk about art and other things too. Anyway, even with the baptismal rite, there's all these teaching moments, right? So remembering all those stories. If you saw the confirmation certificates that the confirmants got last week, um, it wasn't just a certificate, but it actually had, had four illustrations on it. I think four, or was it five? The cross was in the middle. And then there were four illustrations. The baptism one that I used has seven, I think. So all the story, all stories with the text to tell you, learn about your baptism, and, and then with a picture. Luther did this with the catechism. Um, they're not, unfortunately, they're not extant. That means they, they don't still, we don't have any copies left. But um, he commissioned a publisher in Wittenberg to create um, posters for each part of the, what we would call a poster, for each part of the catechism. So a large woodcut print that illustrated each part of the catechism. So the Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, in a poster form. Um, but what is extent, because there were lots of them made, I don't have my book with me here, uh, were woodcuts for each smaller portion. So first, art, uh, first article, second article, or first commandment, second commandment, third commandment. And so if you have the Book of Concord, the $30 version from CPH, they have all those woodcuts in there so you can see. Because not everybody, they could learn the words, they couldn't read them, but they could learn them to hear them, but then have an image corresponding as a way of teaching the faith. So, um, but again, Luther pairs it down. And then I also gave you this, the Rite of Holy Baptism. This is a booklet that I made up for uh, the parish in Indiana, which the notable thing is right on the first page, second to last paragraph. We talked about this last week. Therefore, depart you unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then this is Luther's rite. And this is from the Lutheran service book, but not the hymnal pew copy, but the, the book that I use that has Luther's right in it. I had to print it out then. And then you can see it drops some of the things. But for the most part, it's at the end. I actually added these back in about the garment and the candle. But Luther had omitted those in his right of 15, whatever it was. It says on the article here, 1526. Okay, So you can look at this and maybe compare it to what... What's in the hymnal? The other reason I did this, instead of using what's in the hymnal, is that the hymn was printed, so the baptism part, baptismal party didn't have to have it. hold a hymnal to be able to sing the hymn. Uh, this is also uh, the hymn from who wrote this? Uh, you don't have a hymnal in front of you. It, it wasn't Luther, but it was used in the in the Wittenberg hymnal in fifteen, uh, the first hymnal, fifteen twenty one, twenty two. 
uh, to teach baptism. So, and it's, since it's so short, only two stanzas. Yeah, Kingo. Kingo was his name. Actually, no, it's later. It's 100 years later. Um, it's so short, but it teaches baptism succinctly. So using it every time we have a baptism, then you get those words in your head. And we, hopefully we can sing it by heart. The other reason was we started at the back of the church because baptism's the entrance of the, of the one being baptized into the life of the church. So we started at the back, and then we, after we did the introductory part, while we sang the hymn, we processed up to the font. All right, so just another, again, just a teaching moment. Make sense? You can look at those on your own. Thanks for doing the research, Dale. That's helpful. All right, John chapter 2. Uh, I don't see any way that we're going to get through it all today, but that's all right. It's up to you. We'll do as little. I gave you a two-sided handout, so keep this with you, and I imagine we'll probably come. We'll get, have to get back to it next week because. Um, okay, I'll hold the introduction remarks here for a moment because we actually should start with prayer. So, the prayer at the top. This is from von Dietrich, one of Luther's students, for. Uh, Epiphany 2, actually, not Epiphany 1. Epiphany 1. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for instituting holy matrimony to keep us from unchastity and other offenses. Send your blessing on every husband and wife that they may not provoke each other to anger and strife, but live peaceably together in love and godliness. Receive your gracious, receive your gracious help in all temptations and raise their children according to your will. Move us all to walk before you in purity and holiness, to put all our trust in you and lead holy lives on earth and in the world to come. Enjoy eternal life through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, Epiphany 2, not Epiphany 1. Epiphany 2 is the day that the church appointed for the Feast of the Wedding at Cana. First of the signs. Uh, unfortunately, a couple things to note here. Unfortunately, Epiphany has gotten kind of messed up in, in our practice in the church, to my liking anyway, because we don't celebrate Epiphany on Epiphany, which would be January 6th, right, on the 13th day of... No, it's <laughs> the 12th day of Christmas, the day before, then Epiphany, the 13th day. Um, <clears throat> and because we don't do that, then we move... Because Epiphany is a, a chief festival of the church here, then we move it to the, either the preceding or following Sunday, which means something gets displaced, right? That would have normally been celebrated there, either the, the Sunday after Christmas or the first Sunday of Epiphany. And then we also, and since the Lutheran worship hymnal, so since the early 80s, have also been displacing the Sunday following Epiphany to be the baptism of our Lord, because baptism is important. Baptism of our Lord was traditionally celebrated on the octave or the, the, a week after Epiphany, so the following Whatever, what that sixth plus a week? What's a week after the sixth? Thirteenth, yeah. And so, because that's so important, then we displace another Sunday for the baptism of our Lord, which means there's two Sundays of Epiphany, or the last Sunday of Christmas, first Sunday of Epiphany, depending on the year, that get omitted in order to celebrate those other festivals that get moved on to Sunday. Now, um, why is this important? Well, because the second Sunday of Epiphany is the wedding of Cana. But almost every year it gets displaced. 
Maybe every other year. That's not true. It's probably about every other year it gets displaced for one of these other festivals. Now, the pastor's free, the congregation's free to say, let's not do that. Um, let's not displace the wedding at Cana because we want to hear that text. And then I think, um, well, that's probably enough on that. Church calendar nonsense. Um, but it's just, I think it's a little, um, what do you want to say? Pandering sounds really hor- horrible. <laughs> uh, you're trying to accommodate people who, who don't celebrate church festivals the way they used to and make sure that they hear the chief text. But on the flip side, it's like, why not just celebrate the festivals? Why take the easy way out and just not go to church on Epiphany and just come on Sunday? You know what I mean? So I go back and forth on that because I recognize that getting people here on a weekday service like this week for Ascension on Thursday night um, is asking something. Hmm, it's asking you to interrupt whatever your normal schedule is during the week. You know what I mean? To come to church. Um, I recognize that. And there's going to be conflicts and all that. But... Um, we're not, we don't actually usually transfer ascension, even though, again, it's as, at least in the early church, it's considered as high a feast day as Epiphany, which we move, right? So you were going to say something wrong? No. Okay. So uh, this is all by way of saying then that we actually don't really talk as much about the wedding at Cana as what was, we don't hear it preached as often as up until, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, as the church did before. That's how important they thought this day, that day was when hearing that reading, um, that they would hear it every year. And now we don't. And then, uh, hmm, was there anything else with that? No, that's probably sufficient on that point. The, the second point is, you see the collect for Epiphany 2. Um, this is actually a really different collect. I don't have the collect in front of me. Than the one that we, we've been using, again, since uh, this time since the Lutheran hymnal. You can see, as far as collects go, it's pretty long, isn't it? Because usually we pray the collect after we hear the, or before we hear the readings, and it's meant to kind of introduce to you the themes that you're going to hear in the readings. It collects the themes into a central thought. Um, with the Lutheran hymnal, um, because they were in a panic to get something out in English, they pretty much just borrowed almost all of the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican hymnal, Church of England it was in English. And the Church of England had built their liturgy in a large part upon Luther's reform of the Mass. Um, even though the Church of England's more of a reformed church, liturgically they, they actually have a lot, a lot of similarities to um, the Lutherans. And they, um, some of the primary translations of German Lutheran hymns came out of the Church of England as well, into English, long before um, there were English-speaking Lutherans in, in the U.S. Okay, so like the 17th and 18th century. So this collect is a little bit longer, which tells you it's probably newer. Uh, von Dietrich was a student of Luther and um, was not all that happy with the collects that they received from the Roman church, which did, in the Lutheran's estimation, didn't always actually get the point of the gospel text or the relation of the gospel to the epistle text for the day. Also, by the way, no Old Testament readings until, until again, the, the 50s, 60s in, in the Sunday service. That would happen at the, at the uh, Matins and the Vespers service, the morning and evening service. So, again, we stopped having Matins and Vespers, so what we have to do, we have to move the Old Testament reading 
on to, into the main service. Yeah. As long as we're talking about them, like mm-hmm. where the readings actually set up in the mm-hmm. church? Yeah, the ones we're using are almost entirely consistent with those from Gregory the Great, so 6th century. Yeah. Now, Gregory, I, I did some reading on this not that long ago because I was curious. Because, um, like, right now, the John readings are this jumbled mess. They're all from John chapter 15, 16, but they're not in order. We go backwards and forwards. Uh, he did that intentionally. And there's not a lot of... He doesn't tell you exactly why he did that, but th- there was a tradition of reading those chapters from John in Easter already at the time of Gregory, 6th century. Um, but then he changed, rejiggered the order. I'm not really sure why. But he didn't change the, or the, the collects. When he changed the readings, he left the collects in place, but he didn't change the, the gospel reading. So the collect for last week actually, I think it's this last week, bears, actually connects better with today's gospel, and today's is better with last week, but whatever. These things, yeah, it's not, it's not precise. Uh, sixth century, Ron, so that's, you know, uh, 1,500 years. So there, I think there's some wisdom in that. And you read this month's newsletter article, and I think I talk about that a little bit, if I remember right what I wrote. Uh, so, but the reason I gave you von Dietrich is that you know this is a Lutheran saying, "Here's what I think the propers for this Sunday are about." And you'll notice his themes: instituting holy matrimony, the wedding at Cana makes sense, right? Let's talk about marriage. It's a wedding. Um, why is marriage given? Unchastity and other offenses, right? That's Paul, right? Better to marry than to lust. Um, then we ask for his blessing, God's blessing upon husband and wife, which he's promised that they may not provoke each other to anger and strife. Yeah. That doesn't sound like marriage, does it? <laughs> I, I, I've said it so many times, I, I, I think I have it memorized now, but um, I heard it said this way, that marriage is low-simmering hostility punctuated with moments of intense passion. <laughs> Generally at each other's throats most of the time. Uh, but lived peaceably together in love and godliness. Receive your gracious help in all temptations and raise their children according to your will. So the purposes of marriage, which we heard at the wedding that we, for um, John and Linda here. Just, was that only a week ago now? Hmm, that week was so busy. And then notice, that then he expands it out, because not everybody's married, right? Or still married, uh, maybe uh, through being a widow or divorced. Move us all to walk before you in purity and holiness. Um, which is a common issue is that people think that the sixth commandment only applies to those who are married. All right, so, but uh, how, how's it go? We, fear and love, we should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do. Say anything about marriage? No, sexually pure in what we say and do, but regardless of whether we're married or not. And husband and wife, what? Love and each other. Yeah, love and honor each other. Right, so uh, let's see. So all live together in purity and holiness to all put our trust in you, which is actually connected, I think, pretty well to Mary's words in in John chapter 2, which we'll read. And lead holy lives on earth and in the world to come. Enjoy eternal life. That idea of purity and holiness, I think von Dietrich is right. Um, That's actually the primary thrust of this text because it's connected to baptism. And where baptism makes one clean, right? Washes clean of sin. So he's, it's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to actually do a whole cycle, a whole year where we use his collects. And I would not sing them, Ron, since we were talking about singing the collects. Because, like I said, they're pretty long. Yeah, yeah. And maybe this would be actually an occasion where it's like, 
I mean, I just don't think we could even pray them together because how would you break the lines up so that it's hard to read together? Um, We don't think it's as hard as it actually is because we do it so often. We sing and we pray together, but uh, we say words like the Lord's Prayer. Um, But it's actually a lot harder than it sounds. Just try to pray together with children. Make make my face. That's why, if if you've ever noticed this, like the Nicene Creed, for example, and the Apostles' Creed, you see how they're laid out? This is called sense lines. So they give you all the breaks so that you know where to take a breath. And, and you know, if somebody gets to the end of the line early, then they need to wait until everybody gets there and before going on to the next line, that kind of thing. Because, again, it's not, it's not, um, it's not inherently obvious how to, how to pray. Oh, since we're mentioning it, uh, that's also why I like to use this catechism from um, Peter Bender, who's pastor down in Sussex. Um, because he does the same thing with the whole catechism. So it's broken up into those same kind of sense lines. So it's a lot easier to pray it. And then the prayer guide you get each week usually has it broken up that same way. Again, so that you can pray it together. All right. Uh, Why did I bring all that up? Well, anyway, it's a longer collect, but also I think he gets to the point, and I didn't give you the offending collect from from the Church of Rome that we um, still use. All right, let me give you a little introduction uh, before we read, and then we'll dig into it. The story of water turned to wine at the wedding in Cana is unique to the Gospel of John. Strategically, it initiates Jesus' ministry. It continues the sequence from John's baptism in chapter 1 to the teaching of baptism in chapters 3 and chapter 4. That's, by the way, chapters 3. Chapter 3 is Nicodemus. Chapter 4 is the Samaritan woman. It is not an independent, symbolic story. The gospel text is written to be read, beginning to end. That means from we read the whole gospel according to John. The echo of the Cana story reverberates with the cleansing of temple, John 2, 12, following, discourse with Nicodemus, John 3, and discourse with Samaritan woman, chapter 4. I got ahead of myself. Its literary purpose is to create and sustain faith. So that's Um, we can compare verse 11 then with the purpose statement from chapter 20, which we've talked about at length already. Uh, Namely, sustain faith in Jesus as the Savior who gives life to the world. And uh, this is not some abstract idea of life, just like a good idea, but it actually is found in the realities and practices of the church. So how does Jesus give life to you today? It's not like you reach out and grab hold of his life, but actually he gives to you his life, and how does he do that? Otherwise, it's just a story that doesn't fulfill its purpose, that one see and believe, and that one hear, and in hearing receive eternal life. That's John 20. The story of Christ is the story of the life of the church. Now, maybe that sounds doesn't sound profound to you, but it actually is, I think, because most often this is what people do with, with God's word, is they pull at least in my experience, pull out the text and then say, what does this mean to me? And that's not what John does. John gives his gospel to the church that the church would understand why it does what it's received. Right? So the church has received teaching and practice, and then his gospel is, is there to illuminate what it is they receive. So, for example, um, read the newsletter article this month. We baptize, but do we just leave baptism alone? The washing with water and the word. 
Is that it? You're baptized and you're saved. Go, go in peace. See you later. No, of course not, right? What, we, what, what is Jesus attached to baptism? Go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and by teaching them to guard all things that I have given you. Right? That's why Bible class still in the summer because that's actually Jesus' instruction to us is that we continue to, if you might say it this way, fill up your baptism with what Jesus says about baptism. So think John chapters 1 through 4. He's, he's putting into your ears everything that Jesus does in baptism for you, saving you, cleansing you, forgiving you, um, making you new, restoring you to, to the family of God, bringing, even bringing in outsiders into Samaritan, into the, the household of God. All that's in baptism. Does that make sense? So that, I mean, that's the reason to read it, is, is not just, again, just, oh, this is a story where, like Von Dietrich did, where he just teaches us that marriage is a good thing. Because he showed up at a wedding. Well, I mean, that's true. He showed up at a wedding, and I think we can infer from that that he cares about weddings. <laughs> right? But is that the point of that text entirely? Or is that only part of it? All right. Anything... My, my mother, who was here last week, she said that I don't give you enough time to answer my questions. <laughs> She's a teacher, retired. Her last day was Friday. 40 years teaching. But, um, yeah, she said I, I give you probably three to five, and you need seven seconds to ten seconds. I'm just looking at the uh, <clears throat> footnotes. And mm-hmm. This is the Luke and James version. Yeah. Uh, it's a little paragraph here. Really talks about you were just saying says, um, explaining new birth in chapter 3, verse 25, mm. the message of the kingdom, upon repentance, a new order of life opens to the believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus used the figure of new birth to dramatically indicate three things. One, without new birth, there is no life and no relationship with God. Two, in new birth, new perspective comes as we see the kingdom of God. Three, no, that's not. God's word becomes clear and the Holy Spirit works and wonders are he believed and experienced faith is alive. The third, number three, through new birth we are introduced, literally we enter a new realm where God's new kingdom order can be realized. Good. Yeah. And that's John chapter 3, that's the next chapter that has to do, of course, that dialogue with Nicodemus being born from above. And uh, again, that one, I mean, I think that text is so obviously baptismal that nobody would have any question about it. What I'm trying to suggest to you here is actually that, that changing water into wine is also a baptism text, which may not be as obvious as I think, hmm, as you would think. Well, it doesn't seem as obvious maybe at first glance as, as maybe it will be, hopefully, as we go through it. So, yes. So let's see if we can do the same thing that your uh, footnote did or your little paragraph did, with John 3. Uh, verse 1. There was a, oh, we should read it. Let's read it. <laughs> On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drunk the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, obviously, you know why it's Epiphany, because in verse 11, signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee to manifest his glory. That's what Epiphany means, right? To reveal or to make manifest, as we say, Manifest in what, what's the God epiphany hymn? God and man made manifest epiphany hymn, right? Um, manifest his glory, and we've talked about glory, but we'll get to that in a bit. And his disciples believed in him. So remember, he reveals himself for what purpose that we would have faith in him. Um, I didn't put this on the notes, but maybe it's worth saying right now because uh, I don't know that we've actually talked about it. In John's gospel in particular, unlike maybe, say, Matthew or Paul, Paul especially, faith is not a noun. Faith is a verb. Okay, so a noun would mean faith is a a thing, right? Uh, In John's gospel, he doesn't use it that way at all. Yeah. It's faith. They believed. They believed. It's faith in. By By the way, yeah, the word for faith, pistis, and pisteo is the verb form. It's the same word. So it'd be... To, to believe is the same as faith, the, the, the thing. Does that make sense? It doesn't. Another example of this in Greek is kinging, right? We, we'll translate it that he reigns, but in Greek the word is the same word for king. So he kings. The king kings. And, and here, the, the, uh, to have faith is to believe, believing the verb. In John's gospel, it's all active, which means, as verbs do, um, verbs have an object. Especially faith has an object, always has an object. So faith in, and in this case, in Jesus, right? Or in the word of Jesus, what he said or what he's done. Welcome. You're off today. You get a little break. Give me a shirt. Get a break. Hand up. Just, yeah, the hand up. All right, so that's worth noting because that's going to come up a lot in John is faith in Jesus or faith in the word of Jesus rather than just like, uh, what was his name back in the 80s? Um, George Michael, remember George Michael? Had the earring, kind of effeminate, yeah. Just got to have faith. It's like faith in what? Well, faith. What is faith? It's trust or hope in Something or someone, right? Um, but people generally says, I have faith. And the worst place to put your faith is in yourself. I have faith in myself. Like, how do you trust yourself? Not so easily. I mean, you can, but not for salvation. All right. Uh, let's see. Wedding at Cana. This text appointed for use at weddings. Uh, although I haven't, I don't think I've actually used it at a wedding yet. Some in the early church, though, saw weddings as base and worldly, especially the celebratory wine. All right? Now, why would they think? They thought, it, actually, that it was beneath God to attend a wedding, which I, I know sounds crazy to us. 
but I think that's largely because we've shifted now because we have talked about marriage so much because of the way that the world has distorted marriage or even our, our country, right? To be something that it's not. And uh, so we talk very, we talk a lot about marriage. We have been talking a lot about marriage over the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years as things have shifted very quickly. What has God given marriage and does God like, and he actually gives marriage. It's a blessing um, from him. It's the way he made us, male and female, and then joining us together. Uh, but the, eh, the early Christians, some of them, one, they thought of sex as always sinful, even, us, even within, within God's design, within, the, within marriage. Um, that isn't to, but see, they also didn't always think, they didn't always take Paul's word seriously to say that we do nothing apart from sin. Everything we do is sinful. Everything we think, say, and do. Um, the only thing that makes it good is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, which is what Paul says. Um, but they, they, they saw, like, even the procreation of children, that God gives a blessing in the midst of sin, is how they saw that. In sin did my mother conceive me. Um, we don't actually hold to that position. And St. Augustine didn't either, by the way, which I give you Augustine. He did initially, um, but then he shifted over his life. And um, actually, we thankfully have moved away from that thought. For this reason, the Lord was invited and came to the wedding the conjugal chastity might be given support and the mystery of marriages might be shown forth as a good thing from God. Still a mystery, how two can be joined together and become one flesh and, and that. But we understand why that's given because we'll get to it, Ephesians 5, right? What are you going to say, Ron? Um, when you look at it from the big picture, uh-huh. um, marriage is like a, a unity in Christ and the church, isn't it? Yeah, that's Ephesians 5. Right. That's Paul. Paul says that marriage was given actually to teach us what God, before the foundation of the world, had ordained in the giving of his son to his church. Yeah. So he gives us marriage in order to teach us of Christ. Husbands know this because they, they um, have give themselves for their bride right, in all things. Um, and wives learn this too as, as the church in, in obeying or submitting to her husband. Uh, even when she doesn't like it. Yeah. And we don't have to, I mean, that's talking about marriage and, and the ethics of marriage is a whole other conversation. Those of you who've done it for a while know that, yeah, it's an, there's a, it's not always like this. It's sometimes like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes I read to it, I thought, um, the reason, or one of the reasons for marriage is to produce children mm-hmm. to have yeah. Yeah. It's true. That's true. Uh, the, the blessing of children. I mean, children are always a gift, regardless of how they were conceived and what the circumstances of their conception and birth are. Regardless, always, God gives that life. Um, which these Christians who say, "Well, abortion is okay in cases of rape and incest," are not consistent with God's word. So, if you hold to that position, you know you can argue with me about it. Um, now are we very good about being receptive of those children and you know I, I've, I've actually seen cases where churches have kicked out the one who conceived outside of wedlock along with her child rather than receive her and the child into and continue to receive her in forgiveness of sins in the church because it's so sinful and they're like yeah but now you've also not only have you re- removed the one who may be in unrepentance um, who needs to hear the gospel but you've also now kept their child from the church which is, I think that's pretty abhorrent. Uh, what were we talking about? All children are, 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 are a gift from God, okay. 
And Ron, your question was, or your point? We talked about that. There was something in between. I lost, I lost my train of thought. Hmm. Oh, the children, yes. Yes, and God gives children when and where he will. So some, some couples don't receive children, even though they'd love to. And uh, that's where we do well to promote things like adoption and, um, and foster care of ways, uh, or even receiving, I mean, this one's a little bit more controversial, but receiving um, what they call snowflake babies. So children that are conceived in a test tube, but haven't been implanted in a womb. Um, that one's a little bit controversial because you have to use IVF and un- invariably some of those embryos die. That, so they're, they're fertilized embryos, but then they die because they implant like, I don't know how many, three, five, something like that. And then whichever one takes, you know, sometimes more than one takes, you'll end up with triplets or quadruplets, you know, because of IVF. So that one's a little bit more controversial because we've got embryos sitting and frozen in a test tube somewhere. And we would hold that those are children that just haven't had the benefit of utero development, I guess is what we call it. Uh, children are always, though, a blessing and a gift uh, to be received as a gift, uh, even though children aren't always all that gifty. Sorry, guys. Sometimes challenging. But he even uses the suffering that children bring upon you for your blessing. That's my confession, whether I like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is one of the purposes of marriages. I think we don't, I think we, we want to be careful about it. I mean, obviously, my life is a testament to this, that that's. I believe the scriptures teach that, and we try to live according to what the scriptures teach. Um, but we, I don't think we should be ashamed about just you know, teaching that. And again, not everybody can receive children. Oh, I know the other thing I was going to say. Thanks, Ron. Um, marriage, from the beginning, is the building block of all society. It's the building block of the church. It's the building block of, um, of the home, of course, the household. But that one's obvious. Uh, but it's also the building block of civil society of community uh, is marriage and children. Um, so Hillary wasn't entirely wrong when she said it takes a village to raise a child. She wasn't entirely wrong. Uh, it's really not the village's responsibility to raise the child, um, but the village assists in that. Friends, neighbors, because you learn how to love when you're with, when you're with neighbors. Right? I mean, we have kind of a village on our little property. You know, <laughs> We have our own little village, in a sense. Uh, Male and female and ages and all sorts of things. So that's an important note too. So marriage is given at the beginning. God created man and woman for marriage because that's actually how he orders all of creation. All of humanity is ordered around that gift of marriage. Mm. This is why our civil government, our government, still actually gives incentives for people to marry and to bear children, actually. And some governments are a little bit more overt about it, um, like the Russian government, because fertility rates are below, it's less than one per couple, something like 0.9, 0.8. So, I mean, they do all sorts of crazy stuff. So you don't pay taxes, you get free college tuition. I mean, they're trying anything because their society is falling apart because they have no children. Japan's the same way. They, they don't, Japan's population is some, I think the median age is 75 right now, something like that. They're living a long time and there's no, it's just like ours, social security, why is it failing? Because we don't have taxpayers to pay into it, like we thought we would. Why not? Because we didn't bear children. I mean, that's, it was built upon 2.2, 2.3 children per household. Anyway, and our, and our, birth, our fertility rate's below that. Actually, our bearing children's below that. All right, side note, sorry, weddings. 
That's not primarily the point of the text. All right. Uh, third day. Sing, signal that, not hat. Signal that. <laughs> if you're reading along there. Uh, that, that wine miracle reveals a connection between the water, the suffering of the, Jesus as the lamb, Jesus' own baptism, which he will give by his spirit. And you can see the previous handout. I can't remember which one that had to do, where we talked about the days. Third day, sixth day, we tried to number the days. And I was connecting you to, remember Abraham with Isaac going up the mountain? And what day that was on? I'm sorry. This is all backfilling. It's been a while since we had that one on Sunday school. Yeah. So you can, you can have oh. a fun time. Take one of each. And uh, you can fill in. Fill in the back. I keep all the handouts because you never know when somebody's going to join in. It just You can skim them or something. But uh, If you want to read about the third day, sixth day. But third day, you think, what does that remind you of? You hear three days? Resurrection. Yeah, death and resurrection. Jonah, which is also a death and resurrection picture. The third day with Abraham and Isaac, right? And Isaac being sacrificed. And, um, but actually, the, the ram taking his place. So lots of third day. I think that's why he shifts to third day here. Um, John is really big, especially if you read um, the Apocalypse. Numbers, numerology, days, weeks, seasons, all that is it's loaded with meaning. It's not just you know, a counting of days. So third day, you can try to resolve it by other means, but I don't think that's helpful. I think he's just pointing forward to chapter 20. And there's other reasons why this text is really a bookend. Oh, this was last week with the heaven open, but it's really a bookend from chapter 2 to chapter 20. There's, there's signs, that, or there's, there's text notes so that we're being, everything's being included. We're already being point, pointing forward to the end at the beginning. So that everything's funneling down to that, that cross, if you like. Does that follow? All right. Here's another note, which we'll see as we study them, but it's worth pointing out now. In This is the second to bottom paragraph on the front. In both of the following discourses, meaning chapters 3 and chapter 4, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, marriage is brought up in relation to water, right? Because the woman at the well, she comes, give me living water. Well, what's the deal with the woman at the well? Whose husband, right? It's the nature of the conversation, you know, in the resurrection. Uh, even with Nicodemus, um, I'm not going to spoil it, but we'll get to it there. Wedding is in the background of the Nicodemus text. Um, namely, the wedding, wedding as a symbol of the union between God and Israel, which would result in God's steadfast love for Israel. And I think we actually should look at some of these texts. That's why I said we would get through it today. Um, and the reason I want to do it is for my own benefit, but also for yours. I've, I've actually had a number of people over the years who have remarked to me that they thought that the marriage picture, we talk about the marriage of Christ to his church or the, the, that he gives himself up for her, uh, a, a sweet-smelling sacrifice, all the ways that the, um, the liturgy and the Bible itself teaches of Christ and the church being that marriage relationship. Um, I've actually had people say, man, yeah, it just not, doesn't really resonate with me. And in some cases, it's because their marriage is a little bit um, challenging, if we put it that way, um, or, or failed, you know. Um, they broke it. Um, but in other cases, I think it's just, just not knowing that this picture uh, has been given throughout the scriptures. And uh, it's just lacking knowledge, then you don't understand the significance. So uh, let's get some knowledge, right? 
Ezekiel, how do you spell that? Ugh, I have too many Ks. There we go. Ezekiel 16. Let's look at that one first. Did you turn to it, or are you just going to listen? Ezekiel 16. I don't know where it is, so I'm just going to... There's a table of contents in your hymnal. This is one of the things that's, um, that I learned in Christian day school, that... Oh, yeah. Unless you do it like the alphabet, which I think is probably how we have to treat it as parents, Christian parents. Treat the books of the Bible like learning your alphabet. Yeah, I know. I learned it that way. That's fine. You can use the table of contents. Ezekiel 16. I make people do this in my class. I'm sorry. And I have to do it over at the school because they let them use the computer. And I'm like, man, when I teach religion, you have to open a Bible and find the page. Sorry. Because your computer's not always going to work. Someday lights are going to go out. And we're going to live in post-apocalyptic society. And the only thing that will work is the book. <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll actually treasure the books because we won't even be able to print them. Not easily. All right. Ezekiel 16. Again, does somebody want to read? Ron, you want to read? Yeah, go for it. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cross Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, Thus saith the Lord God of Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in sloppy clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. And you were thrown out into the open field and when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. Ooh, that's intense, huh? Keep going. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the He's talking about Jerusalem, right? Yeah. I made you thrive like a plant in the field. And you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed you by again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. And I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off the blood and anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals and badger skin. Ooh. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, with bracelets on your wrists and chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was fine linen, silk, embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. Mm. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. Yeah. Did I tell you to keep going? Well, I, I don't know if you want to read the next couple of verses. Sure, well, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> But you trusted in your own beauty, you played the harlot because of your faith, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. 
You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. All right, that's good. Yeah, it gets pretty rough. Uh, you're right. Is this Jerusalem or Israel? We would say the people, God's people, right? So you say, well, he doesn't say wedding, but he does say covenant, right? My covenant with you because you became mine. That's, that's wedding language, right? And then how does he treat her? As the bride, right? Adorned by her husband with fine linens and I'd like badger shoes, uh, badger yeah, skin shoes. That sounds nice. And silk, right? Fine linen and earrings and jewels. Put a jewel in your nose. People do that, don't they? I always wonder about that because you have the stud inside your nose. That sounds horrible to me. But Yeah, a crown on your head. So not only are you getting married, but you're becoming, because you're married to the king, you're royalty, right? Become the queen. Um, and that, all that stuff at the beginning is really rough. Uh, by the way, rubbing salt on someone is a way of clean, cleaning them. Salt and oil. Salt being uh, abrasive, but it removes um, impurities. And then the oil actually is protective, right? Especially in a dry culture. <laughs> um, you know, a more arid culture. That's very important that you would be oiled. It keeps your skin from drying out. Uh, so, but notice, nobody's taking care of you. And yet... This, I mean, this is a picture of, what's the big Bible word? It starts with an R. When we say, we, say, we call Jesus our Savior. What's another word we use for him? Redemptor. Redeemer, yes. This is redemption, right? You, you're, you're, you've been, you're like a child that was born and left, expo- left in the wilderness exposed, right? Like, like the pagans did, right? If you, if you were weak and... and um, you know, the run to the litter or whatever, however you want to describe it, they just leave you out in the wilderness to die because they didn't want to take care of you. Isn't that something? And that's who we are apart from God and he comes along and not only does he find you and clean you and wash you and give you life, but then also clothes you, right? Now that covenant clothing, that's, that language that sounds familiar and also being washed with water and being cleansed of mm-hmm. blood. And I, I don't remember ever hearing this reading, but it does, it, this is a... It is a good Samaritan reading, that's right. Uh, It's also then a baptism reading, and it's also a marriage reading. See that? So baptism and wedding go together. So it's one of the ways that it can be expressed. Now what does she do with the great gift that the Lord has given her? Yeah. How do we know it's about weddings? Because she plays the harlot, right? Adultery. How she treats this marriage that she has been given is then she breaks it and acts like everybody else's husband except for actually the one who made her royalty and cleansed her and clothed her. And even taking her, her garments and using those to make high places, false places of worship and play the harlot with. So that's another thing that, um, it's another marriage picture, but in a negative way, is that frequently, especially in Ezekiel, but Isaiah too, um, and I think Hosea, they describe describe in unfaithfulness to God in terms of infidelity in terms of marriage. Okay? So, so going after false gods or, or is, the analogy God uses in the Old Testament is that of being uh, unfaithful to your marriage. So there you go again. Again, is it a powerful analogy? I think it is, especially given Paul in Ephesians. For Paul in Ephesians 5, which we'll look at at some point, this, it's just assumed that you know this picture from Ezekiel. By the way, Ezekiel, I think, is pretty important to St. John. Um, so we're, we've already seen on some of the previous handouts 
uh, which you'll see I make when you uh, spend all your time this week studying them. <laughs> but uh, uh, we've already brought out Ezekiel and some, I think, at least once um, in our study so far. And but it, it's predominant. It's the it's the predominant backstory to to the Revelation of Saint John, the Apocalypse, the last book. All right. Let's see. How about Ezekiel twenty three? Want to look at that one? Skip forward a few pages. Oh, yeah, this one's a lot of fun, too. Maybe we don't read these things in church because they're a little uncomfortable for, the, for parents with their children sitting next to them, but I don't know. Uh, the only book we really don't read out loud in church very often is the Song of Songs. Yeah. 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 Actually, the rabbi said that you didn't read it until you were 30. You didn't even read it. Because it was, you needed, you needed basically all your hormones to, to start to get muted before you could read that without being led into sin. So I don't know if you've read it. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'll read this one. Thanks, Eileen. A word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They committed harlotry in Egypt. They committed harlotry in their youth. Their breasts um, were, their breasts were there embraced. Their virgin bosom was there pressed. Their names were Ola, the elder, and Ola, Olaba, I guess. That's how you pronounce that. Her sister. They were mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Samaria is Ohala. There we go. And Jerusalem is Oholiba. So, Samaria... Uh, Ohala played the harlot even though she was mine and she lusted for her lovers the neighboring Assyrians who were clothed in purple captains and rulers all of them desirable young men horsemen riding on horses thus she committed her harlotry with them all of them were choice men of Assyria studs we might say right (laughs) and with all for whom she lusted with all their idols she defiled herself she has never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt for in her youth they had lain with her, pressed her virgin bosom, poured out their immor- immorality upon her. Therefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians for whom she lusted. They uncovered her nakedness. So think back to 16. What did the Lord do? Covered her nakedness. Here, they uncover her nakedness. Took away her sons and daughters and slew her with the sword, and she became a byword among women, for they had executed judgment on her. Now that, of course, is going to be significant in chapter 4. This is how Israel, this is how she relates to Samaria, the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans. This is how they think of her. Okay? Now, although her sister, uh, Oholibah, saw this, I think they don't read this part, she became more corrupt in her lust than she, and in her harlotry, more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. Oops. I guess she didn't read far enough, Jerusalem. She lusted for her neighboring Assyrians, captains and rulers, clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. I've heard that before. Then I saw that she was defiled, but took the same way. She, but she increased her harlotry. She looked at men portrayed on the wall, images of Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion. That's red, right? Girded with belts around their waists, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like captains in the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea the land of their nativity. As soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. 
Then the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their immorality, and she was defiled by them and alienated herself from them. She revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness. Notice with Samaria, the Assyrians uncovered her nakedness. Here, she does it herself. That's why she's worse. And then alienated, I alienated myself from her, and I had alienated myself from her sister, as I had alienated myself. And this is just the history of the northern and southern kingdoms, right? Northern kingdom taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and oh, they were so much purer and better. But then, when the Babylonians came along, they went into the with the Babylonians. Um, yet she multiplied her harlotry in calling to remembrance the days of her youth when she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt, for she lusted for her paramours. Oh, that's a fun word. I don't know what yours has there. Verse twenty, illicit lovers, something like that. Hmm whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys, and whose issue is like the issue of horses. That's uncomfortable. Thus, you called to remembrance the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians pressed your bosom because of your youthful breast. So not only did they go in with the Babylonians, but they actually, they longed for the days in Egypt where they were also in adultery in Egypt. Unfaithfulness, in other words. Yeah, so why don't we read this in church? Hmm. Okay, kids, here's what issues mean. Okay, let's not talk about that. Yeah. So you, again, it's a marriage picture and it's harlotry and you see how both the northern and southern kingdoms are brought under God's judgment because of their unfaithfulness, right? So what is God saying about the, about the exile in Babylon? He's actually saying not only that it was their fault, but that they, did it, they were complicit in it, that they didn't, they didn't go in. Just like, you know, when the spies come and to the promised land and they say, Joshua and the others, you know, um, let's go in and conquer. And the people are like, oh, no, they're pretty powerful people. We're not going to go in there. What's the problem there? God has promised that land to them. And they're saying to God, mm, we're not so sure, which is being unfaithful. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this helps a little bit, but the footnotes on this section say that uh, these praises uncovered their nakedness and, and so on. Or political alliances with mm-hmm. these countries. Yeah, this is depending upon them to help rather than help. Yeah. So this is metaphorical of God's relationship to his people. But remember, it's entirely caught up in political too at this point. There's no separation of church and state, as we would call it. Um, the the state of Israel and the this and the religious affiliation of Israel are one and the same. God has established his kingdom on earth. Um, but I think he's showing them how, how futile, and that's, that's probably not the right word, you know. Well, as Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I'd bring soldiers and armies and clubs and that sort of thing. Yeah. I really do want to look at Isaiah and especially Hosea, but I think we, sh- we should hold off on that until next week. Again, what we're trying to do here is backfill uh, why this marriage, why marriage is the beginning of the first sign why it's the, um, I would say it's in the background um, of this text. And uh, I think what it will end up doing, if I do it well, <laughs> so you have to hold me accountable to this, is then you'll understand Jesus and Mary's discourse. It's really short, right? They have no wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Do whatever, do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants. That's all they, it's just those three, you know, that little interchange. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like, what are you, how do, what, 
He says, it's not yet my hour. And she understands what that means. And she says, do whatever he tells you. And it's like, what? And uh, I think if we know these texts, it'll help. It's kind of like the story of Jesus in the temple. Hmm? When, when, uh, he's at 12 years old or whatever. Right. Separates from his parents and conversation with Facebook. Yeah. It's kind of puzzling. Yeah. Why he would do that. It is to them. Don't you know I have to be about my father's business, right? And... Uh, now that's in the synoptics, that's not in John. But, um, but the, I, your point is valid. Um, this happens to us often in the Gospels. Something very short and brief Jesus will say, the people will receive it, They'll, they understand what he's saying, and we're like, what are you talking about? So what are, what are we lacking to understand in the way that even the people in the, in the text, they understand right away what he's talking about? All right? So we have to do that study to backfill so that we understand. His words. Good. All right. Depart in the Lord's peace, and we'll see you in church.